Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast from the Movie Muse team. In this show, we're going to travel back in time over the last three decades and look at what was popular in the charts for video games, movies and music. As this is a Christmas special, the charts we'll be looking at are the Christmas charts from 1985, 1995 and 2005. With me in the Movie Muse time machine, I've got Matt Corn. Greetings. And Simon Burton. Hello. And I'm your time pilot, Gordon Sinclair. All we need to do is punch in the coordinates, pull this lever here, and press that button there, and off we go, back to 1985. Wow. We've arrived back in 1985 and it's day glow coloured, shoulder padded sight for sore eyes. Right across the street from us is a Rumbelow store with a huge 22 inch colour TV displaying CFAX and as the pages roll I can see all the news from December 1985. The eastern half of North America is hit with an exceptionally cold winter, one of the worst in recorded history. And earlier this month Hugh Scrutton was killed outside his California computer rental store becoming the first fatality of the bombing campaign by the American mathematician and domestic terrorist Theodore Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. Between 1978 and 1995 Kaczynski killed three people and injured 23 others in a nationwide bombing campaign that targeted people involved in modern technology. In New York City, American Mafia bosses Paul Castellano and Thomas Bilotti are shot dead in front of a steakhouse making hit organiser John Gotti the leader of the powerful Gambino family. And in the UK, unemployment falls for the third month running, but still stands at over 3.1 million. In football, Scotland have secured a rare World Cup qualification following a goalless draw against Australia in their second leg of their playoff. Manchester United have recently moved five points ahead at the top of the first division with a 3-1 win at struggling Aston Villa who were in danger of relegation just four seasons after winning the European Cup. And Liverpool's title hopes have been hit by a 2-0 away defeat to Arsenal with the Gunners 19-year-old Irish striker Niall Quinn scoring on his debut. Manchester United will go on to finish the year still top of the league but all that changes in the second half of the season as Liverpool recover to take the league and cup double. Over in America, Nintendo released the NES in October, but the revolutionary home gaming system didn't initially sell particularly well. But with the release of their breakout game Super Mario Bros. a couple of weeks ago, the NES is starting to become the must-have Christmas present in the US, though it won't hit the shops in the UK for almost another year. Big TV shows of the period include the Teleaddicts Christmas Special, where the Payne family take on Nina Mishkov, Barry Tuck, Michael Grade and Larry Grayson in a TV-based quiz show hosted by Noel Edmonds. A Question of Sport sees hosts Bill Bowman and Emily Hughes joined by celebrities Stan Boardman, Ray Brooks, John Nettles and Eddie Large. And the Paul Daniels Magic Christmas Show brings us a magical version of Snow White with Debbie McGee and Vanilla Fielding. Other highlights for December include the first ever episode of The Muppet Babies, the 25th anniversary episode of Coronation Street, and Minder on the Orient Express, a feature-length episode of the TV series Minder, starring George Cole and Dennis Waterman. And finally, on the 31st of December 1985, Inspector Juliet Bravo said over and out after six years on our screens, keeping crime at bay in the fictional Lancashire town of Hartley. So 1985, do you guys remember what you were doing in 1985? 1985 I would have been nine years old 
so I would definitely have been to see Back to the Future earlier in the year and probably the Goonies as well. I've probably listened possibly to my Rocky Four soundtrack on cassette, although that might have been a couple of years later. And I would have been playing games on a BBC Micro. Simon, what about you? 85 was a great year. I had loads going on. I had a big family wedding in May. I got my Commodore 64 Christmas 84, so that was kind of starting to play a big part of what I was doing in 85. Also, I went to Ireland in the summer. My friend Paul came with us, and we had a good laugh over there. And also, I remember in 85, musically, it was my favourite Now compilation came out. Now it's one called Music 5, the last one with the pig on the front of it. And it was a really good gift pop music with Duran Duran and Tears of Fears and all that kind of stuff was going strong still. So that's what I was listening to, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a really good year. Yeah, well, in 1985, I'll have been 13, so hormones will have been kicking in, spots will have been sprouting. But other than that, I can't remember that much. I think we might have got our first video recorder in 84. So in 85, I'm pretty sure I was creating my first movie database. I don't think I called it movie views back then, but every film that we got from the video shop, I would add to this database and give a rating and a little bit of an overview of the film and that. And it's a shame I don't still have that because that had been quite interesting to see what I thought of films like Ghostbusters and Gremlins and Back to the Future and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some of the charts from the month that we've travelled back to. So we're in December and in the music charts, the Christmas charts saw four Christmas songs and two Wham! tracks out of the ten. At ten, we had Last Christmas from Wham! Nine was Santa Claus is Coming to Town from Bruce Springsteen. At eight, we had Dress You Up by Madonna. Seven was Separate Lives by Phil Collins and Marilyn Martin. See the Day by DC Lee was at six. At five, West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys. Four was I'm Your Man by Wham. Three was Do They Know It's Christmas, the band aid single. And at two was Merry Christmas Everyone by Shaking Stevens. And number one for Christmas 1985 was Saving All My Love For You by Whitney Houston. So do any of those songs stand out for you guys? Are these the kind of things that you'd have been listening to on your Sony Walkman at back in the day? Apart from the Pet Shop Boys, the rest was a load of old rubbish. I cannot stand Whitney Houston. That was a really poor end of the year for me. It was so much better in 85 from you know, garbage and Christmas chart. There's nothing on that list apart from Pet Shop Boys and maybe Shakey that I have any interest in whatsoever. Christmas is always bad for singles in particular, isn't it? Because it's always people trying to get the Christmas number one. And especially in the 80s, it was all Christmas songs, as you can see. To be fair, those Christmas songs are a lot better than some of the Christmas songs in later years. Do they know it's Christmas? That would be the second year that was out, wouldn't it? Because it first came out in 84. That's actually a re-release. And don't know if it went to number one second time around or not. But obviously it, it was getting plenty of money for the charity for you know the famine in Africa and stuff. But yeah, much like Sam, there ain't a lot on there that would have appealed to me even back then. Maybe the Pet Shop Boys song. Definitely not the Wham! songs or the Whitney Houston song. I remember the name DC Lee, but I don't remember the song. Did you ever 
one song that I did like on that countdown, I mean, obviously Pet Shop Boys is probably the standout track of that top ten, but Santa Claus is coming to town from Bruce Springsteen. All-time classic, surely. Not particularly, not I'm to not me. A fan of, not a fan of Springsteen, so... Well... The only one of those, I would say, is a good Christmas song, because Do They Know It's Christmas is a pretty decent song, but it's not really a good Christmas song. It's probably the Shaking Stevens one. Snow is falling one of my favourite Christmas songs. Springsteen's for me just because he was an ageing rocker, you know, he, he wasn't the kind of person you expected to do a Christmas song at the time. You expected Shaky, you expected pop acts like one, but you didn't expect this serious rock star to be releasing a song like that. So I quite liked that one. So let's move over to the album charts then. You said that these were all specifically Christmas themed or kind of presents. They were what you bought to give someone at Christmas and the albums are certainly of that nature. Five Five of the top ten were compilations, and only three of the top ten were original works, which is quite a sad state of affairs, really. I always look back on the 80s as being brilliant for music, but we're looking at singles and album charts, and they're really not. So at 10, we had the greatest hits of 1985, various artists. Another album from various artists at nine was the Love Album. And then we have the singles collection by Spandau Ballet at number eight. This is the sound of my soul. This is the sound. Number seven was Madonna's Like a Virgin. Six was George Benson with his Love Songs compilation. Five was Sade with Promises. Four was Brothers in Arms from Dire Straits. Look at them yo-yos, that's the way you do it. You play the guitar on the MTV. That ain't working, that's the way you do it. Money for nothing in your cheeks. And then the top three were all compilations. At three was Hits 3. At two was Now That's What I Call Music 6. And the number one album for Christmas 1985 was Now The Christmas Album. It's not a spectacular looking top ten by any means. It's just, as you said, the effect of Christmas. Everyone just goes out and buys a nice compilation for their son or grandson or whatever, didn't they? But strangely enough, this top 10 contains two of the first three albums I ever bought for myself. And I probably bought them sometime in 1986, I would imagine. They were Hits 3 and Brothers in Arms. I joined one of those mail-order record clubs. Britannia. It was the Britannia Music Club, yeah. And I assume they're the same Britannia that went on to be the people that did the Brit Awards, I suppose, and you think about it. yeah. So I think you got three for £2.49 each or something like that, and then you had to buy one a month for a year or something like that at slightly reduced prices. So I bought, for my introductory offer, Brothers in Arms, Hits 3, and Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. So although I wouldn't call any of those great albums now, those two in the chart were two of the first three albums I ever bought. Interesting. Well, one thing that I think we should do is score ourselves on how many of these albums we actually had back in the day, or even since then. So, Matt, are there any more on there that you got? I've got a feeling I might have had now, that's what I call Music 6, but I couldn't be 100% sure, so I'm just going to say I definitely had two from that list. 
Okay, Simon, what about you? I've got to spend down about eight singles. I had that one. Shard I cannot stand that. I cannot stand that rubbish. <laughs> but Brothers in Arms I had. The two now albums I've got, because I always got an hour album. So now six. I remember that. We went around my friend's house for a party, and we just got it in the high street that day and brought it around and played it that night on vinyl, which is pretty cool. So that's at least four in that list. Hits three, I vaguely remember. The hits were trying to be like now. They were just sort of like competing compilation albums. So yeah, they all hits, different versions of that. And then obviously now won it over and they're still going to those. So we'll give you a score of four then, Simon. For me, the only album I had at the time was Like a Virgin. There was a guy who used to drive his car around the estate and sell copied tapes from his car boot. And I remember getting lots of great tapes from there. But I also remember getting Like a Virgin with photocopied inlay. So I do remember having that one. And I do remember also having the Christmas album. So I'm only going to score myself two on there. So Simon, you're the winner of our music round. Well done. And we will now move on. And let's have a look at the video games that were being played Christmas 1985. The games charts were dominated by Commodore 64 and Spectrum, which is no surprise, seeing as they were by far the two most popular computers in the country. There were three Spectrum-only games in the charts, and only two of the ten were available at that time for the Amstrad. There was one game for the Commodore 16 and one game for the MSX out of the ten that were in the charts. At number ten, we had Action Biker or Clumsy Colin Action Biker, the KP Skips-sponsored video game from Mastertronic. At nine was Now Games, which was a compilation similar to the Now Music titles, and there were six games included of varying quality. We had Lords of Midnight, Brian Bloodaxe, Strange Loop, Pajama-Rama, Arabian Nights, and Falcon Patrol 2. At number eight, we had Finders Keepers from Mastertronic, the first in the Magic Knight series. Then at seven, we have Formula One Simulator from Mastertronic. Six was Fighting Warrior, and that was from Melbourne House. And it was, at the time, only available on the Spectrum and reviewed particularly well on the Spectrum. I think it got nine out of ten in a number of the magazines. But then it was released later on the Commodore 64 and a couple of other systems and fared quite a lot worse than that. At number five, we had Hacker from Activision. Then at number four, Edge Games released Fairlight, which was an isometric arcade adventure. Number three, another Spectrum exclusive at the time, was Daily Thompson's Super Test. Number two was Frank Bruno's Boxing, which I played for hours. And the number one game for Christmas 1985 was Way of the Exploding Fist. Yeah! <laughs> so what games on that list stand out for you? I had quite a few of those. Action Biker I had, really good. I was like that clumsy collie. And I remember getting that one. I bought it from a shop near me and I had to get the bus home. When I got off the bus, I realised I'd left the bloody thing on the top deck on the front seat. The bus was on a circular route and I worked out what time it was coming back and it went the whole route of its route round in a circle for about an hour. When it got back, I asked the driver, I can go and have a look. I went upstairs, it was still sitting there. So I still got that one today. Maybe they thought it was the Spectrum version, because the Spectrum version was a very different game. The Commodore 64 Action Biker, which was also, I think, the same one that was ported to a couple of other systems, was actually really good, but the Spectrum version was terrible. So maybe they just thought it was the specky one and left it. Yeah, more than right, left right, most of the specky games. Anyway, moving on. Finders Keepers, no, never that. Hacker, I've got it now, but I didn't know it at the time. It seemed quite interesting. It seemed quite in-depth with all the little TV screens with the grey fuzz and then you have to look at security cameras and stuff. It seemed quite good at its time. I'd even go for that. Fairlight at night. 
It's not isometric. They're not great on the 64, but it moved briefly well and the puzzles weren't too bad. But it's played Exploding Fist, loved it, played it to death at the time. Really good game. Kept me going until IK Plus came out. So, yeah, I also remember that as a particularly fond game from 1985. It's very obvious that Mastertronic were onto a good thing by selling their games for 199 because there's three or four of them in this chart. All of which I own because I've got a complete collection of Mastertronic games for the Commodore 64. And a lot of these games were re-released by Mastertronic as well, like Hacker, Fighting Warrior and Way of the Exploding Fist. But obviously Way of the Exploding Fist is the obvious standout one there. Really good karate game, nice animation on the sprites in particular. Good gameplay, you can play it two players as well. Pretty good selection of moves considering you've only got the four directions of the joystick and one fire button. And I think it was exclusively to the Commodore 64. It had the bonus level where you could punch a bull in the face. <laughs> you definitely so couldn't awesome. do that in the spectrum. Yeah, so that's probably rightly the number one game out of that selection. Finders Keepers was a nice little collect-em-up flick-screen platformer. Pretty difficult, though. I never got too far in that one. I could never get on with the Magic Knight games, but they were hugely popular, and Finders Keepers was obviously the first, and it was actually the second best-selling game from Mastertronic of all mm. of their games, and they released a hell of a lot of games. Yeah, um, I think you have to remember that it was two quid, and it was quite a big game for two quid. It's a bit different to the other Magic Knight games, because the other games are almost like point-and-click things, but Finders Keepers is more like a Jet Set Willy sort of game. Ah. So it probably was more appealing. It's more of like an arcade adventure, whereas in the other three, you have to pick up objects and take them to characters and they'll give you another object and you have to take that somewhere and all that kind of stuff. So it's more of an adventure. This was more of an action-based one. I would probably have liked that game more and I've probably avoided it since then because I thought it was more of the point-and-clicky action adventures that the later games became. Yeah, Maybe I should try that one. It's worth a play. It's definitely the best of the bunch from my perspective because I'm not a fan of those more laborious sort of adventure games and it's dead easy to get killed in the later ones as well which is completely at odds with a game where you're supposed to make lots of progress with it you know but i think back in 1985 to get a decent game for two quid was quite rare because most of the mastertronic early games were really bad actually the ones that are in this chart are all pretty decent but Mm. they're in the minority compared to most games like the infamous bionic granny and jungle (laughs) story and things like that so that might explain why it was such a big seller I think for me, the standout games, obviously, where they exploded in fish, like you said, I love the box art to that. That's one of the few video games that I quite like a poster of. I just love that, you know, the guy's screaming face as he's smashing a piece of wood. But I think one of the games that I definitely would pick out is Frank Bruno's Boxing. It was an unlicensed port of Punch-Out, and how they got away with it, I don't know. They used all of the characters from the original game and just changed the names of them for all the contestants, and then added a few more in that just added more and more semi-racist stereotypes. So (laughs) it was probably not the most politically correct by today's standards, but it was just such a fun game. I loved that and probably spent the whole of Christmas playing on it. Daily Thompson Super Test was one of the launch games for the Spectrum 128. You got that and Never Ending Story with it. I'm not sure whether they released a 48k version afterwards, but I got that when I bought my Spectrum 128 in July of 85, and that was superb. It had more events, things like cycling and canoeing and things like that, but it had a fantastic rendition of the Chariots of Fire theme. I 
used to load it up and just listen to the music. Whatever I was doing in the bedroom, um, don't ask, I'd just have that music playing in the background. And the other game that you got, Never Ending Story, had even better music. So Daily Thompson Super Test and Never Ending Story are probably the two games that take you back and give me that nostalgic glow more than any other. Well, we all unanimously agreed that Way the Exploding Fist is the standout game on the chart, fully deserves to be number one. It had actually been released in June that year, so it had been in the charts for quite some time. I'm sure it had jumped up the charts at Christmas, as a lot of people had been bought Commodore 64s and Spectrums. One thing I didn't realise until I was doing a little bit of research was that it was endorsed by Jeffrey Thompson, World Karate Champion. It also was Game of the Year that year at the Golden Joysticks, so we agree and the general public agree by putting it top of the charts, and the critics agree by giving it the Golden Joystick, so it's all round plaudits for way of exploding fist. The music is brilliant in the 64 as well, I love that mm. Chinese type music, really well done. With it. Yeah, it's a beautiful looking game as well. The graphics are really nice for that era. I mean, they're really nice, big sprites for that era. I had that on the BBC Micro, actually, and it was even good on that, although it's got a much reduced colour palette compared to the 64. Still a good game. Yeah, very good. Okay, let's count up then how many of these games each of us have played. I've been through the list, and I can say I've had, over the years, seven of those games. Matt, what about you? I've actually got tape copies of six of those games as part of my Mastertronic collection, as I mentioned earlier. Six is the number, because actually I haven't played any of the other ones. Simon? Yeah, I'm six as well. Action Biker, Formula One Simulator, Hacker Fairlight, Frank Bruno and Wayne Exploding Fist. So I take that round with seven, and I think I'm probably at an advantage there being a Spectrum owner, given that all ten of those games were released on the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 only got seven. Okay, so we now move on to our final round, which is the films. So we looked at the box office charts for Christmas week 1985. Now, unfortunately, I've not been able to find a UK chart for that period. So we're looking at the United States box office results. And there are a couple I've not heard of before. So I'll run through the list and let's see what you think. At number 10, we have Enemy Mine, which is a sci-fi adventure starring Dennis Quaid. At number 9 is A Chorus Line, directed by Richard Attenborough and starring Michael Douglas. Number 8 is The Colour Purple, Steven Spielberg's film that got a Best Actress Oscar for Whoopi Goldberg. All my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy, I had to fight my uncles, I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family man's. I never thought I had to fight in my own house. Number seven is a reissue of Disney's 101 Dalmatians. Number six, White Knights, which is a film where Barishnikov is a ballet dancer who's defected from Russia. And that film also won an Oscar, this time for Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me song. Number five, Santa Claus the Movie, which actually received some really negative reviews at the time, but has since gained a cult following. Number four, Out of Africa, Robert Redford and Meryl Streep's epic romantic drama that got seven Oscars. Number three was Spies Like Us, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, and directed by John Landis. This was a massive box office success, even though, again, it was reviewed badly. Spies Like Us, The Men, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. The Training. Hands down! Come on! 
The mission. What's this? You don't want it! Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. We're Americans! Spies like us. Number two was Jewel in the Nile, the sequel to Romance in the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. And number one for Christmas week, 1985, is Rocky IV, Ivan Drago versus Sylvester Stallone in an East meets West battle. He could have stopped the fight. He could have saved his best friend's life. But now, the one thing he can't do is walk away. He's had one professional fight, and one man is dead. It's P.P. This film had a $28 million budget and took in over $300 million in the American box office, which is an absolutely fantastic return. It was written, directed and starring Sylvester Stallone, of course, and somehow it was nominated for five Golden Raspberries. Scandal. Scandalous. I mean, whoever comes up with the Golden Raspberries is a buffoon. Yeah. So there's quite a few big films in there. There's a few that I have seen that I can't remember. Enemy Mine. Anybody know of that film? Yeah, Uh, I really like that film, actually. uh, It seems to have reviewed well, but it's not one that I've seen. And it definitely flopped at the box office. It's quite good. I was a really big fan of it when I was a kid. So around this time, probably a little bit later. It's definitely one I watched on video a few years after it came out. Because they were taught to be allies. Because they had to be. Because they dared to be. And only one of them is human. Enemy mine. Coming this Christmas to theatres everywhere. So it's Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. as enemies. Louis Gossett Jr. plays an alien, and they both crash land on this very hostile planet and have to work together to stay alive, basically. And it's just a really enjoyable film. There's a a couple of really good scenes in it early on. It kind of loses its way a bit second half, but it's not a bad film at all. Worth a watch, I would say. What about you, Simon? Any standout films in there? Not at all, but Rocky, to be honest. Children of Dalmatians, obviously, seen that originally, so I know of that. Santa Claus, the movie, seen it, didn't like it, so no, there's nothing really on there that, that interests me, apart from Rocky Four, really. Spies Like Us is one of my sort of favourites from that era as well. It's yeah. not a great film by any means, but it's fun, and the Russian girl in it that Dan Aykroyd hooks up with at the end is just phenomenal. Spies Like Us is one of those films. It's really of its time, and I'm not sure I could watch it again now, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think there's quite a few good films in there. Colour Purple, obviously, was a huge film. I didn't see it till long after 1985, probably 10, 12 years later, but that was a stunning film from Spielberg, and I think that was the first film of his that I watched that I thought he can do serious film as well as adventure-y, action-y kind of stuff. So I enjoyed Colour Purple, out of Africa, I just found really dull. Maybe it's one of those films that I should rewatch now, but I probably won't. But Spies Like Us, Duel in the Nile, Santa Claus the Movie, I watch that every year. I don't know why it got the negative reviews it did at the time. Maybe I'm just caught up in the cultness of it. But that whole list, it's all about Rocky IV, isn't it? It's all about yeah. Ivan Drago. And that was a fantastic film, and it hurts me that it got the slagging that it did. I mean, come on, this is the East versus West showdown of all showdowns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This was Rocky against the Soviet Union. This was an unbelievable film. And on previous podcasts, we've talked about the soundtrack. And I think it's still top of our soundtrack leaderboard for its soft rock soundtrack that I would never listen to outside of the film. So as individual 
trackside hate it but it works fantastically with the film and who doesn't love that montage oh, Rocky the training, train, montage. The training montage is one of the greatest things in film it's the best it's montage not. ever it without is. any doubt where would you place Rocky 4 amongst the Rocky films that's a tough question Matt I'd probably put it fifth I'd probably put it fourth I think better than Rocky 3 probably but not as good as Rocky 2 I can't it's obviously not as good as Rocky 1 and Rocky Balboa I can't slag off Rocky 3 and I know there's problems with it but I just think that Clubber Lang is one of the best characters ever I prefer Clubber Lang as a bad guy than Ivan Drago yeah I'd agree with that he's just pure badness whereas Drago's yeah. just the film probably what isn't country good. tells yeah the film's probably not as good but the character is so you're probably right it probably would come in fourth and the other films that you've mentioned one and two and Rocky Balboa are the three standout films that definitely are the top three probably in that order as well what about you Si? Yeah, I agree with much what you said. Rocky Man and 2 obviously out there at the top. Rocky Man is a great film, so Rocky 4 stick it in about full gear. That'd be about the right position for it, but it is a great film. Okay, let's have a look at uh, our scores for the film round. Now, Simon's already told us he's only seen, did you say, one film out of that list, Simon? No, two, because oh, no. that's 101 Dalmatians and Rocky 4. No, okay. Santa Claus, so that's three, sorry. Oh, three. any advance on three. Matt, how many of these films have you seen? I've seen six probably shows my taste in films that I haven't seen Out of Africa, White Knights, The Colour Purple or A Chorus Line. They're just not my thing and they never have been. I think the ones that you've listed, if you've not seen them now because they're not the kind of films you want to see, regardless of how good they're lauded, you're not going to enjoy them. They are films for a certain kind of film viewer and I've seen all of those and I wouldn't sit through them again, apart from The Colour Purple. So I would suggest watch that because that is a very good film. For me, I'm afraid I'm going to take this one because I've seen nine of those films. The only one I've not seen on there is Enemy Mine. So I'm definitely going to go and watch that, particularly now that you've told me that you think it's a good film as well. It's not an amazing film, but it's a good 80s sci-fi film. You know, it's a bit different from other films as well because it's more about people and spaceships and stuff. What that means is that I am the champion of 1985 and as my reward <laughs> for winning 1985, I get to take one piece of 1985 memorabilia back with me so I can take anything from 1985 back to the present day with me. And I'm going to choose a way of the exploding fist poster. So that's the end of our journey back to 1985. We need to recalibrate the time machine, set our new coordinates, and we'll see you on the other side in 1995. Okay, that was a bumpy landing. We've lost one of our fluffy dice and Simon's sick bag is full to bursting. But I think we're all right. And looking out of the capsule window, I can see men with grungy hair, baggy jumpers and dirty jeans. And the girls aren't dressed much better with a casual dress down style. Looking along the high street, I can see a big bright R-Price store, John Menzies. And we're just down the road from a Tesco's where they're advertising their brand new club card. Checking out 1995 on our monitors, we can see that December 1995 was the time when Rogue Trader Nick Leeson was jailed for six and a half years on a double fraud charge relating to the recent financial collapse of Britain's oldest bank, Bearings, after he gambled with one and a half billion pounds of the bank's money on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. We saw race riots break out in Brixton following the death of Wayne Douglas whilst in police custody. The Queen has written to Charles and Di three years after their separation, urging them to get a divorce as soon as possible. 
and echoing politics in the present day, the Conservative government are in turmoil as the majority drops to just five seats following the defection of MPM and Nicholson to the Liberal Democrats. In football, defending Premier League champions Blackburn Rovers have just been battered 5-0 by Coventry City just a week after Dion Dublin scored a hat-trick for the Sky Blues only for them to lose 4-3 to Sheffield Wednesday. Blackburn had even more bad luck as left-back Graham Lasso fractures his ankle in a 1-0 home win against Middlesbrough, meaning he's going to miss nine months of action, including the upcoming Euro 96 on home soil. Robbie Fowler scores a hat-trick for Liverpool at home against Arsenal for the second year running, and England World Cup winner Jack Charlton has just resigned after nearly 10 years as manager of the Republic of Ireland national team. On the small screen, Christmas Day highlights are the British television premiere of the not-so-family-friendly Indecent Proposal on BBC One. On New Year's Eve, we're treated to a special Songs of Praise on Ice from Blackpool Pleasure Beach, and we also get Baz Luhrmann's dancing rom-com Strictly Ballroom. But we're here to talk about the charts from December 1995, and the top 10 singles for Christmas week had... At number 10, I Am Blessed by Eternal. Number 9 was I Believe and Up on the Roof by Robson and Jerome. Free as a Bird by The Beatles was at number 8. Wonderwall from Oasis at 7. Gangster's Paradise from Coolio at number 6. Number 5 was Missing by Everything But Girl. Number 4, It's So Quiet by Bjork. Father and Son from Boyzone at number 3. Wonderwall makes another appearance at number two from Mike Flowers Pops, and the number one song for Christmas 1995 was The Earth Song from Michael Jackson. Any of those songs stand out for you? Well, for me, it's Wonderwall, one of my favourite songs of all time. The Oasis version, Mike Flowers Pops, all right, I suppose. It was fun at the time, I suppose. Cancer's Paradise, don't mind that. Missing, good track. And apart from that, the rest of it's pretty rubbish, to be honest. That Beatles track, was that one of the unreleased songs that they I think, sang? was that the time when they released that compilation album, Beatles 1, whatever it was, yep. was it around that time? I think that's why that was released, to coincide with that album being released. <laughs> I'm 
pretty sure it was, it was one that had never been released before. It was kind of an unheard Beatles track. That, that yeah, it was definitely not a single or anything in the 60s. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I find it weird that Robson and Jerome became such big stars because oh. they were on some TV show, weren't they? Soldier, Soldier. Yeah, and they sang a song and then everybody just decided how fantastic yeah. they were and they had like three number one albums and singles and all sorts. And I could never get it, but I suppose it was women of a certain age that were rushing out to buy those songs. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't get most of that kind of thing tv stars that become pop singers like there's people mm. at the moment like shane ritchie and bradley walsh oh. releasing albums like what is that all about i used to love sheridan smith pushing two pints along and a packet of crisps but please don't start doing albums now when you're older and fatter just stop it <laughs> it just doesn't work I think there was a number of songs in there that are kind of like low points. Well, I say low points. Father and Son from Boyzone is probably a low point in that that's the Cat Stevens song that is actually a really good song that they ruin. But then you've got songs like It's So So Quiet by Bjork and it was just a gimmick that really annoyed me. And I recently got a Greatest Hits album of Bjork's and I was so made up when I played it and it didn't have It's So So Quiet on it because it probably is a greatest hit in terms of commercially, but certainly not artistically. It's a dreadful song. I pretty much hate Bjork full stop, and that's the main reason why is that song. Pretty much everything in that chart is rubbish, apart from Wonderwall, which is nowhere near the best Oasis song, in my opinion, but it's okay. Earth Song by Michael Jackson, I can't even remember how that goes. It's a really good song. It's the one where he's got, like, elephants dying and things in the background. He's in Africa, and he's got his arms out looking like he's Jesus on the cross. Yeah, and everyone. I kind of remember the video more than the song. It's okay. It's a really good song. I like it's that quite one. a powerful song, to be honest. Yeah, I've got no issue with that. Obviously, Wonderwall's a good one. Gangster's Paradise is a good song. Right. Old Luncheon Voucher on vocals. That was pretty good. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Because I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk. I really hate the trip, but I gotta low. As they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke. Fool, I'm the kind of cheater, the little homies wanna be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street light. The one for me is actually really like Missing, actually, everything but The Girl, actually, it's quite a nice track. I've got a really good voice, I quite like that one. Such a miserable band, though. Well, probably. Okay, well, that's the singles charts. Let's have a quick look at the album charts. So, in the album charts, we've got The Memory of Trees by Enya, The Colour of My Love from Celine Dion, Love Songs from Elton John, Something to Remember by Madonna, Pulp's Different Class, Life from Simply Red, History, Past, Present and Future from Michael Jackson, What's the Story Morning Glory, Oasis, Queens Made in Heaven, and number one, Robson and Jerome. I think we can all say that What's the Story Morning Glory is probably the standout album on there. Possibly Pulp's Different Class, I think. Are we all agreed on that? Or I think, Matt, you're probably the only one who might disagree. No, I don't mind Pulp, actually. I'm not a big fan of them, but the stuff that was on that, like Disco 2000, was sort of the era that I know the most for. I guess the Michael Jackson one's mainly a best of, so that's kind of all right. Made in Heaven by Queen, I'm not sure what that is. Is that a best of album? It must be something like that, because this was after Freddie Mercury had died, wasn't it? Way after, yeah. 
I've just looked it up. It was basically their last studio album, and it's a mishmash of stuff that was recorded and not deemed good enough for their earlier <laughs> albums, and basically just trying to get I, a bit of cash. What I don't recall is the Madonna album, Something to Remember. Just say, something to remember, but don't remember it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't remember that one either. I've got so. to say, that chart is absolutely atrocious. I mean, there's nothing on it to redeem it apart from Pulp and Oasis. Everything else is utter garbage. Well, it's Christmas I mean, it's again, isn't it? Simply Red Life, I had to suffer that because my ex-wife was really into them. There were some tracks on that she couldn't stop playing it. And in the end, if I met Mick Hucknall, and I did actually meet him once, and I had never gun on me, otherwise I would have popped him. <laughs> Celine Dion, I'd take her out if I had a sniper rifle. Totally. <laughs> do not need rubbish like that in this world. And Robson Jerome, again, cack. Okay, so what we do here then is top up how many of these albums we've listened to in full, and let's see who's leading this one. I can tell you that I have heard three of those albums in full. No surprises to guess that it's Pulp, Simply Red, and Oasis. What about you guys? Exactly the same. Same three. I think probably only one. I might have heard Different Class, but I've known What's the Story, Morning Glory. The Michael Jackson one, I've probably heard most of the tracks on it, but that doesn't mean I've heard the album as a whole. No. So. Okay, well, let's move off music then, and let's have a look at video games and see if we can get any more joy there. This was the time where the Mega Drive and Super Nintendo were at their peak. So running through the top ten... And for some reason, in 1995, they were multi-system charts, but all of the games were listed separately for the different systems. So at 10, we had Wipeout for the PlayStation, another PlayStation game, Destruction Derby at 9, Hexen for the PC at 8, FIFA 96 on the Super Nintendo at 7, EA Sports, it's in the game, Killer Instinct on the Super Nintendo at 6, PC Destruction Derby at 5, Worms on the Amiga at 4, Tekken for the PlayStation was at 3 Striker 96 straight in at number 2 for the PlayStation and the number 1 game for Christmas 1995 was FIFA 96 on Sega Mega Drive It's the beginning of an era really isn't it where FIFA dominates the charts year in year out I suppose from this point onwards I suspect virtually every Christmas chart's got FIFA in it yeah, you're probably right, but I am surprised that we saw two different football games in there. I know a bit further on we started to see Pro Evo versus FIFA, but Striker 96, anybody remember that one? Yeah, I've got Striker 96, I bought that for PlayStation. The difference between the two games right next to each other is FIFA 96 was still that isometric, cartoony, Mega Drive version. Striker 96 was a proper 3D football game, so that is quite strange to see them next to each other, but obviously the new entry for Striker, because the PlayStation had come out in 95, so it was obviously building momentum. And both Mega Drive and Super Nintendo FIFA 96 on the charts, but obviously the Mega Drive much higher, which I think just represents how much better the Mega Drive sold in the UK over the mm. Super Nintendo. I would have thought so, yeah. So was Striker 96 any good, Sai? This should be a great match. It wasn't bad. There was a few issues with it, because it was quite new with that 3 3D football on a new system but yeah it wasn't a bad game there was a FIFA 96 that came out on the PlayStation which is obviously not in the chart and that was very similar it was the first proper 3D FIFA the other game that gets two entries on there is Destruction Derby
I've never played the PC version, which is higher in the charts. Obviously, again, that's probably due to the PlayStation not quite hitting its full flow at that point. But I really loved Destruction Diary on the PlayStation. I think Destruction Diary 2 was probably better, but the first one was quite a revelation because it was one of those full 3D games. There was damage. There was a number of different play Mm. modes. I thought that was a brilliant game. Yeah, it was a great game. I actually got it when I bought my PlayStation in November 95. That's one of the launch games. Yeah, it was a brilliant game. I've never played the PC version. I can't think of it even too different. It may be a bit more power of a PC at the time, so it might run a bit smoother. Yeah, I had the PC version. I was a PC gamer in the mid-90s. I didn't have any consoles, and this was the point at which the PC started to compete or even better consoles. You know, the first 10 years of PC games, you know, from the early 80s to the early 90s were pretty dire with crap graphics modes and crap sound but this was the era of the higher spec gaming pc mm. where you'd have a 3d graphics card and a sound blaster awe32 mm. and all that kind of hardware so my parents at this point were actually running a computer shop so destruction derby was one of the games we used to demo the machines because it's quite an arcadey sort of game in the gameplay but it showed off the 3d prowess of pcs at that point Okay, let's each of us pick out our favourite game out of that list, because I think we've played most of them. So if I was to pick out my favourite game in there, it's probably going to be Tekken. Final round. I think the Tekken series of fighting games is really the only series of fighting games that I actually liked because I am a button basher and Tekken let you do that. I think it peaked at three, probably on about number 76 now, but Tekken 3 is possibly in my top 10 games of all time and the original Tekken really set the blueprint for it. So that's definitely my top game. My top game at the time was probably Wipeout. I'm not a massive fan of racing games, but that was just something different. These futuristic ships floating around a proper 3D racetrack was really, really cool. And it was a really amazing game on the PlayStation at the time and one of the AAA titles for it. I've got to say, at this point, it's nice to see an Amiga title still in the charts in 1995. Yeah, I, was just I got that. my Amiga in 87. It was only eight years earlier. So nice to see Worms holding its own there in among all the PC and the consoles. So, yeah. yeah, and that's obviously a new entry there. And that's the yeah. first Worms game. And 22 years later, we're still getting new Worms games. So that yeah. certainly did work. I think my favourite, I do like Tekken for exactly the same reasons as you, Gordon, because I'm sure there's some skill involved with it if you're a really good player, but most people can get reasonably far in it just by button bashing. And I also like the fact that there's a button for each limb. So you've got buttons for left and right arm and left and right leg. I think that's quite cool. But I think my favourite on that list is probably Worms, even though I only ever played it on the PC rather than the Amiga. I've never, ever enjoyed a game of Worms. I don't get what's so great about it. And it's been going 22 years and there's probably been 15 different versions of it and I've played probably 10 of those 15 and still don't get it. Well, I'm with you, G. I don't get Worms at all. It's probably good that you don't get Worms, though, Si, to be honest. (laughs) There's a bit of backstory to that because me and my friends used to play a game called Scorched Earth on the PC. And this was back when PC gaming was pretty crap. Probably like 91, 92, I think my dad got our first PC, a 386, I think it was. And Scorched Earth was a 10-player multiplayer game where you'd control a tank and blow up the other tanks, much like you do in Worms. So I think Worms is just a progression of that. The multiple players sitting around one screen playing this game while Mm. you're having a beer or whatever is that tank sitting on sort of like a landscape yeah and you're yeah. just firing trajectories and trying to hit each other exactly yeah it's just a fun multiplayer game i wouldn't really class any of those games as anywhere near my top 10 but i think i probably had the most fun with worms 
Okay, so the music round was a draw between myself and Simon. So let's see how many games on this 10 we've played. And it must be the format that's listed here as well. I've played seven of these games. I haven't played FIFA 96 on the SNES, Destruction Derby PC, and I haven't played Hexen. So can anybody beat seven? I don't think so. Oh, what, seven? The only ones I haven't played is FIFA 96 on the NES, Killer Instinct, never played that, and the PC version of Destruction Derby. I was on six. I haven't played any of the football games, and I haven't played Worms on the Amiga. I've just realised, I, actually, I haven't played Striker 96, so I'm <laughs> on six. So Simon does take that round with his seven. Finally, in 1995, let's have a look at the movie charts. Once again, these movie charts are based on the US box office and not the UK. So, at 10, we have Dracula, Dead and Loving It. Number 9, Tom and Hook. Number 8, Sudden Death. At 7, Sabrina. Heat at 6. Father of Bride 2 at 5. Grumpier Old Men at 4. Jumanji was at number 3. Waiting to Exhale at number 2. And the number 1 film for Christmas 1995 was Toy Story. To infinity and beyond! Surprisingly, there's not many of those that I'm either seen or much of a fan of. I think Heat was obviously well known for the fact that it got De Niro and Pacino in the same film. I think that was the first time they were in a film together. But actually, it's a bit boring, as I recall it. Jumanji, I've amazingly never seen, although I have got it recorded off the TV to watch at some point. Obviously, the standout is Toy Story, the dawn of the Pixar age and the age of CG animated movies. So that's the real standout there. You know, we talked about Toy Story in our animated movies episode, and I think I said on that that I think it's fantastic, but as soon as you see the humans, it loses it, because you've got these believable, almost realistic toys coming to life, and then the humans come on, and you can see it's a cartoon, and it just dragged me out of that real engagement. I don't think they could have done anything different, but it bothers me that more now than it did back then. But the story's brilliant, the characters are brilliant, and yeah, it was never going to fail, that was it. No, I think you're right. I think the only thing they could have done was have real human actors in it, just picking up the toys and playing with them. Wouldn't have been the first ever 100% CGI movie then, would it? No. That's what it was, I think, at the time. But interestingly, Toy Story 2 is actually, until very recently, was the best-reviewed film on Rotten Tomatoes. It was the film with 100% approval, with the most number of reviews to give it that 100%. And apparently a film earlier this year finally beat it which I find quite strange because I think Toy Story 2 is a better story than Toy Story 1, but I certainly wouldn't be expecting it to be 100% fresh with 300 reviewers. Surely somebody doesn't like it. You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? I'm quite funny with Toy Story. I actually didn't watch the original at the cinema. I watched it on DVD and wasn't that enamoured by it at the time, and I've grown to love it later on. And I think I like the second and third ones more than the first one. Obviously, I appreciate what the first one did, but I don't think it's as good as the follow-ups, not just because of the improvement in the animation, but like I say, Toy Story 2's got a much better story and the Mm. expansion of the characters is better as well. I do find Toy Story 1 a little bit sinister. You know, the dark bit with the boy next door. Mm. You know, it's a bit like the old Disney films, Pinocchio and things like that. They're actually a little bit too scary. 
So Toy Story 1 is a great groundbreaking film, but it's certainly not anywhere near my favourite films. On that list, Devin loving it, that was the Leslie Nielsen film, wasn't it? Yeah. I am Count He's never been this dashing. Dracula. This dangerous. This dead. It's good to be dead. From director Mel Brooks. You're eating insects right from the ground. I don't know what you're talking about. Leslie Nielsen. I'll come down and help. Dracula, dead and loving it. That was amusing for the time. I'm not sure I'd ever want to see it again. Sabrina, that's Harrison Ford, I think. Yeah. Not a teenage witch, then. No. No. It's a remake of a 60s film, I think, but it's incredibly dull. Heat, I'll completely disagree with you on that one. That's not boring at all. Heat was great. There's a million six in bearer bonds, and they ignored the loose cash. Because they had no time, because they were on a clock, which means they knew our response time to a 211, had our air, immobilized it. Entered, escaped in under three minutes. It's a good spot here. We got good escape routes. Two freeways within a quarter of a mile. Traffic video camera, probably disabled. Check it anyway. You recognize the MO? MO is that they're good. Once it escalated into a murder one beef for all of them after they killed the first two guards, they didn't hesitate. Pop guard number three because what difference does it make? Why leave a living witness? And Jumanji, at the time, it was exciting. There was lots of stuff that they'd put in there, like rampaging animals. It was groundbreaking special effects at the time. Now, it's a dreadful film, and they're just remaking it, aren't they, at the moment? And I'm not sure how that's going to work, because I just didn't think it was a particularly interesting story. The rest of them, I don't think I've even heard of most of them. Never seen anything apart from Toy Story on that list. (laughs) Okay, so I think it's probably going to be quite clear. But (laughs) how many films off that list have you seen? Me, one. I think three. Not sure if I've seen Sudden Death or not. I'm assuming Sudden Death is something like a Steven Seagal or something like that. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yep, same thing. I don't think I've seen that. I mean, I've seen five of those films, so I think I'll be taking that one, which gives us an overall tie for 1995 between myself and Simon. So we both get to take something back with us, and I'm going to choose Nintendo's ill-fated Virtual Boy, which was released earlier in 95 in the US. So we might need to shift our time machine over to the US for a quick pit stop, but that's what I'd like to pick up the Nintendo Virtual Boy 3D video game system. So Simon, what souvenir do you want to take back from 1995? Well, I'm going to take back a rarity, and it's the Apple Bandai Pippin, which was a multimedia technology console designed by Apple. It was based on the Pippin platform, which was basically an Apple Mac with gaming front end. Didn't really work out, only lasted a year or so. It was shown to the world in 95, and it didn't really get released until early 96, but it's a bit different. Lost controller, not many games, it's CD-based multimedia, so it's a bit like the CDI I suppose. But yeah, it's a bit of a rarity, so something like that would be nice. Something to have in the collection. It's probably worth about five million quid these days, so I'll take one of those back and see how I can flog it on eBay. Excellent. Let's get it wrapped and stick it in the luggage hold. Okay, so we've used up all our time credits in 1995, and it's time to climb back into the time machine, set our coordinates, and head off to 2005. Well, that was a much smoother landing. I think we're getting the hang of this. Ten years on and things look very different out the window. People are walking past wearing fancy flashy wellies, velour tracksuits, Ugg boots, trucker hats, and I can see half a dozen people with Motorola Razor flip phones. 
Looking along the high street, I can see a huge blockbuster video store with people coming out clutching DVDs of Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, Fantastic Four and Will Smith's Hitch. There's a Woolworths that's starting to look a little worn down. I can't see them lasting much longer. And a CNA with their brightly lit Christmas shop. So let's have a look at what's in the news for December 2005. This month, the very last Routemaster bus in regular service in London runs the Route 159 for the very last time. Used to travel on that. Love it. New Tory party leader David Cameron's hopes of becoming the next Prime Minister are boosted when an Ipsos Mori poll puts his party two points ahead of Labour. The Civil Partnership Act comes into force, granting same-sex couples similar legal rights to those of married heterosexual couples. And much to the joy of our troops, war criminal Tony Blair makes a surprise visit the British forces in Iraq. In football, almost a year to the day after walking out on Portsmouth to become the Southampton manager, Harry Redknapp walks out of Southampton to become the Portsmouth manager. Also, Paul Gascoigne resigned after just two months managing Kettering Town. They did win two, lose two and draw two of the six games, so it's not a bad run of games. And at the end of the year, Chelsea's Premier League charge continued with an 11-point lead over Manchester United, with Liverpool providing a good run of form to take them up into third. Over on TV, Carol Thatcher wins the fifth series of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Him. Cricketer Andrew Flintoff is named BBC Sports Personality of the Year. And Sir Trevor MacDonald makes his final ITN broadcast after over 25 years. On Christmas Day, BBC One airs the Doctor Who Christmas special, The Christmas Invasion, which marks David Tennant's first full-length story as the 10th Doctor. And Shane Ritchie and Jesse Wallace leave EastEnders when their characters, Alfie and Cat Moon, depart for America. Is that really that long ago? Bloody hell. Okay, let's delve into the charts from 2005. Now, as we're all old curmudgeons, I'm sure as time goes on, charts start to become less and less relevant to us. So I'm not expecting any good things from this, but let's have a look. At number 10 in the singles charts, we've got Talk from Coldplay. Number 9, See the Day by Goes to Louder. Madonna's back at number 8 with Hung Up. Number 7, The Pussycat Dolls with Stick With You. Six is Jingle Bells and You Can't Touch This from Crazy Prog. Number five, When I'm Gone from Eminem. At number four, we've got When You Tell Me That You Love Me from Westlife featuring Diana Ross. At number three, it's Fairy Tale of New York by Bogues and Kirsten McCall. The JCB song from Niz Lockie is at number two. And That's My Goal from Shane Ward at number one. I'm not here to say I'm sorry. I'm not here to lie to you. I'm here. Shane Ward, I take it he's an X Factor winner, and we're in this period where X Factor win Christmas number one for eternity. Yeah, I think he's the first X Factor winner. Right. So that means the X Factor's 12 years old as well. I mean, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and the X Factor, somebody make them stop. <laughs> Please. So, other than Fairy Tale of New York, are there any songs on there that stand out for anyone? Not in a good way. Out of that list, Liz Loppy, unbelievably, I've got it on my iPod somewhere. Me and my dad having a top laugh Oh, what? Sitting on the toolbox Oh, and I'm so glad I'm not in school, boss So glad I'm not in school Oh, no 
when it came out, it was a bit different. It was just about a kid talking about his dad, who's a hero because he drives JCB. It came on my playlist recently on the random, and I listened to it and thought, well, it's utter shit. What an absolute garbage. I've never heard such crap in all my life, so I deleted it off the iPod. But, you know, there's nothing, even that Eminem song, that's after My Name Is and the Marshall Mathers album and all that, which is the only two albums I was into. Hung up, though, Madonna, that's the one where ABBA let her use their, or what ABBA song was it? Man After Midnight. Yes, that's the one. She's used that in the thing. It works quite well, to be honest. that song really no, from Madonna's all. later period and Coldplay talk is my favourite Coldplay song so and I'm really marmite with Coldplay some of the stuff I think is alright other stuff I absolutely hate so talk is a really good track I really like that one good video as well you can take I'm quite Mormite about Coldplay as well. I hate Mormite and I hate Coldplay. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, for me, pretty similar in that the Madonna song is okay. I can live with it. Nislop is quite funny because at the bank where I work, we got an email round from one of the kind of lower directors to say that her son was in a band and they were releasing a single and could we all go out and buy it and support him and all of this. And it was like, I don't know who you are. I don't know who your son is. And his song shit. So no, I'm not buying it. Um, <laughs> but it did get to number one. So people were, and it was on the radio all the time. So apart from the Pogues, which, you know, we've been listening to for 10, 15 years by then yeah nothing in there nothing fairy tale in new york it's a christmas classic but it's not really an amazing song is it it is a classic song and it is a good song back in the day when it was first released it was amazing yeah i accept it's a decent christmas song but it's only really massively popular because it's on the radio every christmas Well, the one thing that's happened with charts, and I think probably with the move towards MP3s and all of that, the focus for younger people was more about singles, and for others, it was more about albums. So I'm hoping that there's more in the album chart for us than there are in the singles chart. So let's have a rundown of that. And our ever-present Madonna is at number 10 with Confessions on a Dance Floor. Katie Melua, Piece by Piece, at number 9. Show me Kelly Clarkson's Breakaway at number eight. Seven was Demon Days from Gorillaz. Six is Ankara by El Devo. Five, Never Forget, the ultimate collection from Take That. Number four, Face to Face by Westlife. Number three, Intensive Care by Robbie Williams. Number two, Back to Bedlam from James Blunt. And number one, Curtain Call, The Hits from Eminem. Hi kids, do you like violence? Yeah, Wanna yeah, see yeah. me stick nine inch nails to each one of my eyelids? Uh-huh. 
Wanna copy me and do exactly like I did? Yeah, Try yeah. sit and get fucked up worse than my life is? Huh? My brain's dead weight. I'm trying to get my head straight, but I can't figure out which Spice Girl I want to impregnate. I take it all back. As Alan Hansen would say, a shock. And the only I thought things. you guys might be into gorillas. It's there. Yeah, that's what I'm about to say. The only thing I've got on that list is gorillas. The only thing that I would listen to on that is gorillas. And I'd listen to Eminem maybe because it's got some of his hits of the earlier albums on it. Back to Bedlam, James Blood. That's just chip music personified. Robbie Williams, well after his sell-by date. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't know. Exactly I wouldn't. Westlife, move along. Even though I've met Kian, he's a nice bloke, but musically can't do that. Take that. Never forget. I'm trying to forget. Don't mind some of this stuff, to be honest. That's probably a bit harsh. Il Devo, that just screams Christmas album. That's just what my grand and my mum would listen to. And Katie Mellower, my ex, bought one of her albums, thinking my mum would like it. And even my mum gave it back to us in January, saying, I can't listen to this. She's the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my life. We said in the 80s that we're looking at the Christmas charts, so there's bound to be a lot of manufactured bands, hits albums. But this is massive that, you know, you've got Madonna manufactured, but it's original music, and I'll give her that. Katie Melua, that stands alone as well. Might not be very good. I haven't heard it, so I can't really say. But then you've got Kelly Clarkson, who was American X Factor or something like that. You've got Westlife, Robbie Williams. Eminem's is a hits album. The Take That One's a hits album. Il Devo don't do anything original. All you've got on that list are Katie Melua, Madonna, Gorillaz, and James Blunt. And there's only one good album out of the four. So <laughs> we've looked at some bad music in the three decades we've just covered, but that takes the biscuit. The only thing I would say is there should be some recognition for the fact that Madonna has an album and a single in all three of these charts. So fair play to her for keeping a career going for that long. Absolutely. That's three decades. December, 85, 95, 2005. That's quite an achievement. So yeah, we'll doff our hats to Madonna. So inevitably we come to how many of these albums have we actually listened to. Matt, I'm assuming it's zero for you. I've probably heard all of the tracks on M&M's and Take That, but not the albums themselves. So they don't count. So for me, it's just one with Demon Days. I have actually heard one, which is the Take That collection, because I bought it for my wife for Christmas, I think, and would have heard her listening to it. I'm like you, G. One, Demon Days, that's it. I'm surprised. Curtain Call, I think I looked at that and think I was going to get it at the round of time, because I did like the early NMF stuff, but it just sort of went in a different direction after the first couple of albums, when it just got a bit silly, so I just thought, no, you had your time, son. Okay, so that makes it one each in the music round. So let's move on now, and let's have a look at the video games. 2005, and the charts have now moved into full multi-system charts, so now one game is only listed once, regardless of how many systems it's on. And at number 10, we've got Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Nine is Gun. Eight, The Sims 2. Seven is Shadow the Hedgehog. At six, Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories. At five, Pro Evolution Soccer 5. Four is Prince Persia The Two Thrones. Three is FIFA 06. Two, King Kong, the official game of the movie. Brilliant title. And number one, Need for Speed Most Wanted. Hi, I'm Josie Marin and I play Mia in Need for Speed Most Wanted. Make sure you do all your racing in the game. On the streets, drive safely and responsibly. And wear your seatbelt. So, here's us saying that FIFA runs away with it every year after 96 and will prove wrong straight away. Need for speed. Still EA, but not FIFA. Mm. But it's still in the chart and it will be for every year from now on, I'm sure. 
highlights then? Yeah, I think I've only played one of these games, believe it or not, which is Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories. And by I say played, I mean I've loaded it up and checked it worked and then <laughs> put it on the shelf. <laughs> So that's me out. So as a gamer, 2005 is not a good Christmas for you? No, 2005 is probably around the time I was getting back into retro gaming and I didn't own a PS2 or an Xbox till around about this time, probably 2005-ish. And I wouldn't have bought these games. They wouldn't have been the games I'd be interested in at that point. Well, funny enough, 2005 was also the year that I got into retro gaming when I found a Dreamcast on a farmer's market. So that's interesting. It was the same year for me anyway. found a Dreamcast at a farmer's market? Yeah. That's weird. It was more like an agricultural market, but they did car boot sales there. Fair enough. I thought it was going to be like, please check out my uh, homegrown pumpkins and freshly cut leeks. And also I've got a Dreamcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think they did sell veggies, but not on the same store. So in terms of that list, to be honest, I've not played a great deal of those. Obviously, I've played the FIFA. I don't think there are any FIFAs I haven't played up until maybe 2015. I can't tell you whether it was any good because I can't remember which one's which, to be honest. I did play the King Kong game because there was a big deal made about how cinematic it was. I think the cutscenes were part of the gameplay, so there wasn't like pre-rendering and things like that. I just found it really, really rubbish. I just didn't enjoy the gameplay of it, so that wasn't great. Need for Speed, I lost interest in until PS4 era when they brought Rivals out. So for me, this is a bit like the music charts. It's big names throwing out games that aren't actually as good as the name. The Sims was another one, although that Sims game was all right, but they just got very repetitive. Grand Theft Auto was just kind of a, let's chuck some more out to get a bit more money out of people. Prince of Persia, another old title, trying to refresh it. So I'm not really engaged by that chart at all. This is more my sort of thing. There's quite a few games here that I've played. Garma I've got, like you, Matt, I've loaded it up, checked it worked and put it away. Never really got into it. Apparently it's not a bad game, actually. It's... Gun's a first-person shooter, say, in the Wild West, yeah, isn't it? Pretty, pretty much. much, yeah. America, 1870. War has robbed you of everything. no one to go home to but there is somewhere you can go west a place where there is no law Liberty Stories, yeah, played that. What was the other one they did around that time? Vice City Stories. Vice City Stories, yeah. I've got both those. I think I've actually got them both on PSP and on PS2. Pro Evolution Soccer 5, I played all the PESs on PS2 right through. And they seem to go from year to year. The first PES on PS2 after ISIS Pro Evo 2 on the PS1 was all right, wasn't good. But PES 2 was good, but PES 3 was a little bit meh. PES 4 was the one that you could literally just cross the ball in and you could head in for anywhere. The headers were just ridiculous on it. But PES 5 wasn't too bad, but 6 was probably the pinnacle, obviously, before they went to PS3. But I have played 5. It was the yearly PES update, so I still played it to death. Prince of Persia, I've actually got all the Prince of Persia games, and that was not too bad at all. It was nothing like, obviously, the original Prince of Persia's on PC Amiga and all that kind of era. It was a sort of homage slightly, but it was just a full 3D action-adventure game. And then, obviously, they went on to do other Prince of Persia games on PS3. And Need for Speed, yeah, I quite enjoyed it at the time. I thought graphics are not bad for its time. It runs quite fast. It's all the usual modes, time trials and racing against bots. And you can play head-to-head with someone split-screen. So, yeah, it's not bad. But there's not a bad list on there. But there's no really outstanding games on that list, to be honest. 
Did you play the Sims game, Matt? The original, yeah, but not the second not, one. Because, I mean, the second one, at the time it came out, is absolutely huge business. And that was another one where they kept releasing additional data disks for it. And that kind of lost me when it did that. But I must have spent days and weeks on Sims 2. Nowadays, I can't imagine anything worse than sitting there building a house for a little computer person to live in. But definitely 12, 15 years ago, I was loving it. And I'm surprised that there's not a modern equivalent of that because it was always the limitations that were the problem. What you could do was brilliant, but where it fell down, it fell down hard. You know, like when you had little computer people on the Spectrum in the Commodore? That's what I was going to mention, yeah. It felt like that was a little computer person and he was living a real life. And he did stuff and our expectations were much lower. So watching him go to bed, play the piano, feed his dog, play a game was brilliant because you thought that was as much as you could do. But when Sims 2 came along, it was hyped so much. I actually thought it was going to be a real life simulator for this little computer person. And it wasn't. It was Minecraft for 2005. And that was a bit disappointing. That's probably why I don't have any desire to play Minecraft because I did that with The Sims and I didn't enjoy it. I played the first one for a bit, but not that long. I just used to build the house, get some Sims living in it, and then put one of them in a room and take all the doors away so that they'd starve to death, basically. <laughs> that was what was fun about those games, was like how far you could push stuff. So I just used to play around with it like that. I never used to take it seriously. It was a whole God thing, but you had to like get them to talk to each other, to form relationships and stuff. It's like, I can't be bothered with that. That's hard enough in real life, let alone in a computer game. I think the problem with The Sims was there was no point to it. Whereas, you know, you had Sim City, Sim Ant, Sim Earth, and all of them, there was a goal. There was no goal with The Sims. The goal was just keep your person alive and build a mash in your house. You couldn't win, and that's where it possibly fell down. And that's why, over time, I lost interest. Because how do I know I'm winning? How do I know I'm any good at the game? Or am I just passing time? And that's the problem with a game like that, is you don't just pass time, you pass lots of time. And we've all lost hours on games that we've enjoyed, but losing time on a game that you're not even sure you're enjoying is a bit weird. Mm. I guess your measure of success was how happy your little people were, but that's boring, isn't it? You want to push the limits and see what they can do, but they didn't really do much other than walk around, go to sleep, eat stuff and get up again and whatever. And the other Sims games, you needed to make people happy theme park you had to make people happy but you also had to make money you also had to do your r&d to build better machines and make your part look prettier and you know there were other areas that you could develop but just making this little pixely guy smile cares yeah okay so how many of these games have you played and which is your favorite i've played one game and it's my favorite (laughs) and it's grand theft auto liberty city stories good choice sorry I've played eight of those games, but my favourite out of them that I've actually got enjoyment out of and actually played longer than all the others is Pez 5. For me, I've probably played The Sims, FIFA and Need for Speed and King Kong. So I'm probably looking at four and I'm going to say, even though I can't really remember, FIFA is probably going to be my favourite out of those because even a bad FIFA is still a good football game. So that's going to be mine. So that makes Simon the winner in the game round. It's getting late now in 2005, so before we all sing Old Lang Syne, let's have a look at the movie charts. At 10, we've got Munich. 9 is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. 8, The Ringer. 7, Rumour Has It. 6, the Family Stone, Memoirs of a Geisha at 5, 4, Cheaper by the Dozen 2, Fun with Dick and Jane at number 3, 
number two is King Kong, and the number one film is The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There are a thousand stories in the land of Narnia. This Christmas, the first is about to be told. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. Now, again, being the US chart, I think there's a few films on there I'm not aware of, but there are a few decent films in there. King Kong stands out for me. It was too long, but I still found it a really interesting film. From the Academy Award-winning director of The Lord of the Rings... I'm not convinced that the motion capture King Kong was as fantastic and groundbreaking as people were making out at the time, but I enjoyed the film and I thought that adding a bit of humour, you know, bringing Jack Black into it was a good idea and I enjoyed that film. I thought it was all right, but it was way too long, like you said. I mean, obviously, Peter Jackson had already done this with Lord of the Rings, but you could kind of get away with that because they're all based on very long books, whereas King Kong was a remake of a film that was originally done in about 80 minutes or something like that, and I don't think all the extra stuff really added a lot. I agree that Jack Black was entertaining in it and Naomi Watts was a reasonable woman lead in it as well, but it just was a bit unnecessary, really, I think. I really like the original King Kong and I think any attempt to remake it has just been worse than the original, strangely. Yeah, you are probably right, but have either of you watched the sequel to this King Kong, Skull Island? No. No. That's a good film. It's certainly not groundbreaking in any way, but it's a good, fun action film that isn't too long. And maybe it's what King Kong should have been. So I recommend you do check that one out. So the rest of that list, there's a few films on there that I've really got no knowledge of. Fun with Dick and Jane is some kind of remake of a TV show, I think, with Jim Carrey in it. But the one that I'm amazed is in the top ten on here that I have seen a bit of is The Ringer, which is Johnny Knoxville. I think he's pretending to be disabled, to be in a... like a Paralympics or something like that, like mentally disabled rather than physically disabled. I've been pretending to be mentally challenged so I can fix the Special Olympics. Take money off of it. Should I wear my shirt up or down? This holiday season. Or possibly... It's okay... Talk then. ...to laugh. Parker, I haven't seen you since high school. Oh, no, you, I don't. You, you, classic. Johnny Knoxville. I would definitely bring protection. The Ringer. It's absolutely dire, and I watched about 20 minutes of it, and it's got to be a bad film for me to switch it off. I've got to say, it sounds it. <laughs> sounds like just the worst idea for a film ever. Yeah. I thought I'd seen Fun with Dick and Jane, and I thought it was George Clooney, so I'm thinking of a completely different film. So I haven't seen that one either, because I definitely haven't seen a Jim Carrey film, Fun with Dick and Jane. I've seen one of that list, and that's Harry Potter. Fun with Dick and Jane sounds like a Ladybird book from the 70s that you get at school. King Kong, I know I should have watched it, really, because it was a big film at the time, but again, I just never have seen it. Chronicles of Narnia, it's a weird thing about Narnia, and I was talking about this at my book club the other week, that they talk about Narnia, and I said, well, do you know what, I know it sounds nuts, but I've never read any of the books. I know what they are, but never read them, and I've never seen the films. I've never read the Chronicles of Narnia books. I think we might have read a few passages at school, but obviously I knew about it from the old TV series. 
I watched the movie and was massively disappointed. It was another film that was too long and it was just a bit dull and I couldn't tell who it was aimed at. It seemed to be too dull and serious for kids and not quite exciting and serious for adults. It just didn't seem to know who it was marketed at. And I know they did a sequel as well and I thought that was just as bad, but I think the source material they were working with, they did a really bad job of Narnia. I kind of agree. They did two sequels, actually, and the third one's really bad. I quite enjoyed Narnia, but there's an animated version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe that I watched loads when I was a kid, so I really liked the story. And that animated version is probably better than the film. The film, unfortunately, is in a very big shadow of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which had finished a couple of years before this, shot in New Zealand in some of the same locations. And you're like, well, you probably should have found somewhere else to shoot this, really, even though it's a perfect place to shoot it. I kind of agree that it's just not quite as exciting as it should be, although I do think Liam Neeson was a good choice for the voice of the lion. Yeah, definitely. Tilda Swinton's really good casting as the witch as well, because she's got kind of an angular, kind of scary face. She's in Doctor Strange. Oh, I've seen Doctor Strange. She's the bald-headed woman in Doctor Strange. Oh, okay. I cannot stand the woman. I don't think she's a good actress. I think she's massively miscast in almost everything she's in. But she gets all of these roles and she's really highly thought of and I have no idea why. She does look like a witch, doesn't she? (laughs) Well, I'll give you that bit. (laughs) The production design and stuff on it was really good. It's just not as exciting as it should be. It's a bit of a slow-paced story, though, as well. You know, if you're reading it as a book, half the book's quite slow where nothing really happens. It's only really the last third of it where any kind of real action occurs so maybe the book's just not that good either in that respect I think it's another one where they should have combined books instead of trying to wring as much money and as many films as they could out they should have stuck some stories together cut out some of the dreary bits and it's the lack of excitement that just killed it for me there's just not enough to keep an adult or a kid interested as I could tell you obviously not read the books it's not a very contiguous story they're basically six or seven stories however many it is set in one world but they take place decades apart so it wouldn't really work i think you could combine potentially the lion the witch and the wardrobe and prince caspian because they kind of feature some of the same characters but the people who love it would have gone mad if you'd done that though so you know it's obviously pitched at a certain group of people much like lord of the rings and harry potter and as long as you keep it true to those stories then those people enjoy it my thing I loved about Narnia was in the young ones when Vivian ended up in Narnia that was quite <laughs> good just over into the wardrobe and ended up down there and having a row with the Queen and talking about kebabs and farting it was, yeah it was good and so not the greatest list there in terms of films watched I'm going to score a three on this one anybody beat that? Amazingly. Really? I'm amazed you've only seen three, because um, I've seen four, which well, must be the same three as you, plus The Ringer. Yeah, I think that's it. So, so Harry, Harry Potter, Potter, King Kong, Kong and yeah. Munich. So you've not so seen that, Munich? No. That surprises me. Mind you, you're not really a fan of Spielberg's later stuff, are you? So maybe not. No, I'm not a big Spielberg fan, but it is one that I did want to watch. But I do know it's one of his slower ones, I understand. It's a three-hour jobby, so you've got to be in the mood for it, I think. So I believe you've just seen one of those films then, Simon. Yeah, I've only seen Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Hogwarts has been chosen to host a legendary event. One epic challenge. The Triwizard Tournament. Two new schools. Three dangerous tasks. I'm scared for you. Year four is here. Harry Potter 
and the Goblet of Fire. I wouldn't put myself down as a fan of Harry Potter, but I like the series. I've read all the books and I've watched all the films, but the films are okay. Obviously, Dan Radcliffe played Potter pretty well. The thing about Harry Potter films is you could watch them and if you haven't read the books, you'd be like, hmm, don't know what's really going on here. I would say you have to be a fan and you have to read the books. You watch Game of Quidditch and you're like, what the hell is all this about? And if you read the books and then go to see the films, which is what we did, because obviously the books come out first. Yeah, it was quite exciting. But if you've never been a fan, you come into just watching the films. There's a lot in there that you're not really going to understand what's going on. I think I agree with you. But like you, I read all the books, so I've never been in that position to know. I don't think there's that much going on that need explaining to somebody who hadn't Mm. seen. I haven't read the books. And did you watch the films in order? I did watch the films in order. You wouldn't need anything explaining if you watched the films in order. But picking a film out, not having seen the others and not having read the books, I think, is that where you were coming from, Si? Oh, uh, baby. I think there's a lot goes on in the films. That if you've not read them, there's things happening that you may not understand what's really going on. I just think you'd enjoy it a lot more once you've read the books and then you go and see the films. You know, I, again, half agree and half disagree. I love the first film, which a lot of people who haven't read the books don't. And I think the first Harry Potter film is one of the best book adaptations to a film there's ever been. Every single thing out of that book is on the screen exactly how you expect it to be. It misses out virtually nothing, creates the magical world that you had in your head. And I think it's an absolutely perfect recreation Mm. of that book. But then the films kind of start to veer away from the books because the books just get bigger every time for no reason. There's lots of filler in the books. Is it the Goblet of Fire where they go to the Quidditch World Cup? I think it is Goblet of Fire. I think you're right, yeah. The book is massive. And what they should have done is split that book into two and made two films out of it. But what they did instead is they split the last book that didn't need splitting. Goblet of Fire is probably my favourite book. And the Quidditch World Cup and the whole story about that and the attack at the World Cup and everything was just brilliant in the book. And I was disappointed in the Goblet of Fire film that it all went and happened so quickly. And that's probably my most disappointing of the Harry Potter films because that was my favorite book i just felt like the story was big enough to split into two films but when they actually did split a story into two films the book wasn't good enough to do that yeah i don't think film was that bad but yeah i know what you mean i think it's the worst of the harry potter films but if i haven't read the books i wouldn't think that it's only because i've read the book and seen how it's all expanded and that whole trip to the world cup was just magical you know you can imagine that in the real world being you know a real sport that could have been a film about a working class family going off to see the real world cup at wembley it was just a really well told story that i don't think they captured on the film so you obviously have to make concessions for taking it to film but maybe they didn't make the right cuts in some cases i don't think that's one of the best ones either but just to reinforce what you were saying i think the first two are really bad i can see they're obviously trying to create this magical world but the kids acting's pretty ropey and they just went on way too long for what's pretty much meant to be a kid's film at that point i think as the story goes on it does become a more grown-up story as the characters get older but the first two are like basically kids fantasy films in film form at least but the third one is actually my favourite and I think that's where the characters grew up and the tone got a bit darker so maybe that's why it's more of a grown-up story from that point onwards. I don't think I could recommend anybody reads the books even though I enjoyed virtually all of them because you start off and these books are 250 pages then the second book's 300 pages the third book's 400 pages and then you get to the end and it's 650 pages or something along those lines and you've gone from this nice tight story 
that's got really interesting fantasy elements and that played out well, even though it's all stolen from here and there. But then they just get bigger and bigger and darker. And the last two books, there's just nothing happy in them. And I can't imagine a nine-year-old reading those last two books, especially the next-to-last one. (laughs) It's just dreadful all the way through. Not dreadful as in bad, it's just nothing happy happens at all. So I wouldn't recommend anybody reads them books now. As far as I'm concerned, watch the films, because a lot of that junk is cut out. And the films aren't perfect recreations of the books, but I will never read them again, even though I enjoyed them. I'll probably read them again. I agree with you, the last two. I just think she'd run out of ideas at that point, and I don't think she knew how to end it, to be honest. Up until that point, I actually really enjoyed them, but I'm not a big fan of the Deathly Hallows, either of them, either films or the books. The book was massive. It was just like, you don't need the book the size of the Lord of the Rings trilogy just to finish this thing off, just get to meet Voldemort and make a decision who dies. But I think the films do a good job, portray mostly of what's in the books, and they do take out some of the bad bits, and they dig off slightly, but I think they stick mostly to the plots. I'm actually amazed that two 40-something-year-old men have both read the entire Harry Potter series. Because I didn't even know about it until the film came out. I had no awareness of it at all. I think there's two big differences there. Simon had a kid, so I'm sure he heard of the books by having a kid, or that might have had something to do with it. For me, my girlfriend at the time was a primary school teacher, so she knew all about these books. So I was introduced to them because of that, because of all the hype with all these kids rushing out to get the third book. But everybody always said, whilst the kids' books, they've got very adult themes in them in places, and certainly the later ones are. I don't think that it's childish. Witches and wizards might be a bit childish, but I don't think the writing or the stories are. There's a lot of films that are more childish than the early Harry Potter films that people don't see as childish and wouldn't think twice about grown men watching okay so that means matt and simon are joint winners of december 2005 so what would you like to bring back with you this time i've really struggled to find anything particularly interesting from 2005 it's a bit too recent to see anything that's really collectible or has any kind of nostalgia value so instead i'm going to bring home the hottest new console from 2005 which is of course the xbox 360 which was released in november 2005 i've never actually owned an xbox 360 i've obviously played on one a few times i might even just keep it in the box and see if its value increases over the years but i'm definitely going to bring back the original xbox 360 i really like that console that's probably my favorite console of all time the original xbox 360 oh sorry to hear that <laughs> right carrying on the theme of gaming devices i've gone for a handheld device that was released in 2005 it was called the gizmondo released by a company called tiger telematics it was released in uk sweden in the us in march 2005 but due to various issues with bad marketing silly amount of money splashed on launch parties and all kinds of crazy stuff and half the executives on the board of tiger were seem to be crooks it didn't really make it there's a few games for it a couple of them have a sort of rudimentary augmented reality one of the first times they have gps bluetooth everything built in so i suppose for 2005 it's quite a rarity so again bring one back to keep and one to put on ebay didn't one of the gizmondo execs end up going to prison or something he did ericsson his name was he got done for all his crooked stuff that he was doing and he also crashed a rare ferrari enzo while driving at 162 miles an hour in california he was jailed for this the crash and his criminal offenses they spent millions on launch parties and stuff and didn't any marketing of the actual real console. Just before they debuted it, a widescreen version was announced shortly before its release, resulting in even lower sales of the original. <laughs> what a great idea that was. Genius. <laughs> Less than 25,000 were sold worldwide. 
Well, I think our power crystals are starting to run out, so we need to quickly head back to the present day. So I'm going to put in our home coordinates and we'll see you back in 2017. Home sweet home. That's been an exciting trip back over three decades of chart history. So let's have a look back and rate our trips back to the various timelines. So December 1985, what did you think of that? I really loved 85 at the time as a teenager, but seeing these charts again and thinking, oh my God, was this what was happening at the time? But, you know, great music year, crap end. I'll give it three out of five. Matt, how was your 1985? I think 1985 was a pretty good year for me. I was nine years old, so life as a nine-year-old is pretty decent. The music's not looking great in retrospect, although I did mention that a couple of the albums were amongst the first albums I ever bought, so they couldn't have been that bad at the time. I think the game chart's pretty good. There's some likeable games on there, and I think there's some movies that I really like on the film chart as well, so I'm going to go with four out of five. Well, like you, Matt, 85 was a great year for me. I was 13, just became a teenager. I'd got my Spectrum by then, so I loved the game charts. They were brilliant. Some fantastic films on that list as well. Most of them I don't think I saw in 1985, but I've seen since and were fantastic. Music charts, as usual, in the 80s, the Christmas period, we know it's all full of novelty songs, cover versions and compilations, so a bit of a detraction from there. But yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Four out of five for me for 1985. So the official Movie Muse time traveller rating for December 1985 is 3.7 from 1985 we jumped on 10 years to Christmas 1995 so I was 23 at the time not as good a year as 1985 was for me the movies that year not a great deal on there to excite me the music again better than 85 but not fantastic and the games, whilst I played quite a few of them and enjoyed all of the ones I played, I don't think it was a standout year for games, music or films. So for 1995, I'm afraid I'm just going to give two and a half for that one. Well, I pretty much agree with you. There's very little in the way of films apart from Toy Story on that list. Games-wise, there's a few decent games, but nothing outstanding. The music's mostly terrible, with the exception of Oasis. So I'm just going to give it two out of five. I agree with both you chaps. Film-wise, absolutely nothing apart from Toy Story. Music-wise, pretty much the same. I am going to give it a little bit more, though, because two reasons. I just got a PlayStation and I was getting excited about it. We got Wipeout Destruction, Derby and maybe Striker 96. For me, it was quite new and quite interesting at the time. And just the fact that Wonderball was on there. I'm going to go as far as giving it three out of five, to be honest. And that's probably mostly for the games and Oasis. Okay, so our official rating for 1995 is just two and a half. We all know as we get older, we get grumpier. So are we going to rate 2005 better or worse than what's come before? Matt, what's your scores? Well, the music is dreadful. The games, I've only played one of them and don't really care to play any of the others particularly. And the movies, pretty dismal for the most part. There's a few big budget fantasy films on there, but even they were a bit underwhelming. So I can't really go any higher than one and a half out of five. Wow. Simon, any advance on one and a half? Oh, 
I was 37 in 2005, so I was getting on a bit and getting towards the grumpy 40s. Music, shocking pretty much, but I know you don't like them, but Talk, that's my favourite Coldplay track, so that pulls it back slightly, but the rest of it are just absolutely disgracefully bad. There's a few little games in there that aren't too bad. The Prince of Persia is not a bad game at all, but I've not really played any of them. Gun is apparently not a bad game. Apart from loading it up, I've not really played it. And the films, apart from Harry Potter, I've never seen any of the others, so I'm going to push it up to two out of five. Well, 2005 was a big disappointment on that trip back because the actual year itself was great for me. I had a really good time in 2005, not least because Liverpool won the Champions League, coming back from 3-0 down at half-time, which was just an amazing experience. But December 2005 was rubbish, wasn't it? Films, games, music, all rubbish. I'm going to give it one and a half stars. So the worst so far, December 2005, gets a time traveller rating of 1.7. So that means that December 1985 is this show's top of the past. I hope you've enjoyed our trip back over three decades of charts. Hopefully we'll avoid Christmas next time and we'll get more quality in our charts instead of commercial rubbish. But we've had fun. We're off to sleep off our jet lag and we'll see you next time. <laughs>